Praise God. What a privilege it is to be here with you and uh, to be able to worship. What a great morning and what a great uh, presence of God in worship this morning. Amen? Amen. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, again, my name is Scott Murray. I grew up in Kearney, Nebraska. And let me give a little history. My, uh, my mom was a beautician and my dad was a member of the volunteer fire department, but he also worked for the phone company. My dad was my hero. He was an amazing guy. Uh, he and his five brothers built our family's home on a main street in our town so that my mom could have a salon right in the home. And it was kind of awesome because my bedroom was right above her beauty salon. And so every Saturday morning, I would wake up to the smell of permanent solution and hair dye as those fumes would waft up through the vents. So if anything I say this morning seems a little curled or twisted, it's those chemicals from the 70s. So, but uh, I grew up in a great home. I had a perfect childhood. I didn't grow up knowing abuse, neglect, and abandonment. We went on family vacations. We did all sorts of great things. And I thought life was perfect. And I felt the call of God and ministry in my life when I was 18 years old. I ended up going to Bible college and and we became youth and children's pastors. And, and always throughout our ministry, we felt called to those kids that, that were the ones that nobody necessarily paid attention to. The ones that were kicked to the curb. The ones that would sit in the corner at youth events and not really interact with others. God had put a, a passion in our heart to reach those that nobody wanted. What we discovered was, is that when you serve those that nobody wants... God will send you to be a part of your ministry, those that everyone wants. There's this biblical principle of saying, when I will reach down and help lift someone out of the muck and the mire and set their feet on a rock. In fact, we call it the Royal Family Kids Psalm, Psalm 40. It says this, it says, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and he heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, New American Standard Version for those NIV fans. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my foot firm, giving me a firm place to stand. And he put a new song in my heart, a hymn of praise to our God. And many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man and woman who puts their trust in the Lord. Today I want to transport you, for those of you who have served at Royal Family Kids Camp before, uh, and this is maybe just not stand, but could you just raise your hand if you've been a volunteer before at camp? Raise your hand, hold it up high, look around, take a good look. These are your friends, people that you've hung with, those volunteers. You can put your hands down. For those that haven't been, let me transport you with me to one of our camps. This is a camp and uh, we never reveal the locations of the camp for the confidentiality and the protection of the children so that non-custodial parents won't show up, but we'll just call this place Covenant Cedars and, uh, because there's a covenant from God that when we, re when we reveal the new covenant in Christ to children, something incredible happens. But we'll call this place Covenant Cedars because there were huge, tall cedar trees at this campground. And there was a camper, her name was Zoe. Zoe was nine years old. She had long red hair that met the middle of her back. She had bright green eyes and a huge smile. Zoe was the most precocious child at camp. She was into everything and everything was an adventure. So when it came zipline day, Zoe climbed to the top of this three-story zipline tower 
And as she's buckled into her safety harness and has on her helmet, she reaches the top and she grabs that rope and rings the brass bell and the, the sound just echoed through those trees. And the reward for reaching the top of the zipline tower, the rock wall that she had just climbed, was to be able to hook onto that zipline. And she sailed to the ground with that red hair blowing in that cedar-scented breeze. And as she reached the ground to showers of applause from the other counselors and the other campers and the staff that were there, I walk up to Zoe and I said, wow, Zoe, as I got on one knee and I had my name tag on. You see, at Royal Family Kids Camp, everyone's got to go through 12 hours of training to serve at camp. And everyone has to be background checked and screened. And everyone wears a name tag so that the children know who's a safe person. And the kids even wear one as well. And I walk up, I get down on one knee, and I said, wow, Zoe, it looks like you're having so much fun. What's your favorite thing about Royal Family Kids Camp? Well, I thought Zoe was going to say something like the fishing or the hiking or the activity stations. I thought Zoe was going to say something like the birthday party, because at Royal Family, most kids in foster care have their birthdays overlooked or not made a big deal of, especially before they're taken into foster care. Maybe they've never even had a birthday party. But at Royal Family, we do that so that they have that significant moment and a box of presents. I thought Zoe would say something like the camp grandma and grandpa, whose job it is to give hugs and tell stories. I thought Zoe might say the tea party or the variety show, the talent show, that every kid gets to get up on stage and do something fun and get a standing ovation. It's awesome. But instead of saying those things, Zoe looked up at me with those huge green eyes and she read my name tag. And she said, Pastor Scott, my favorite thing about Royal Family Kids Camp is that I have a safe bed to sleep in. And as if it meant nothing, she said, it doesn't happen anymore because I'm in foster care. But my stepdad used to come into my room at night and do things to me, and I had to pretend to be asleep. And I know these are the kids we serve. I know that we serve children from foster care. But when one says something like that, so matter-of-factly, my heart is on the ground. And Zoe just reached over. She grabbed the hands of her big camper, of her counselor, and the other buddy camper, and they ran off to the waterfront to go swimming. She was having a great time. We realized that, and Joel shared the statistics in this area, there are tens of thousands of phone calls that come to the state hotlines every year of reports of children that have been through abuse, neglect, and abandonment. What we like to say at Row Family Kids is that children navigate a minefield of fear in their own homes, not knowing at any moment what's going to unleash the next violent explosion of pain in their lives. It might be a word they say. It might be something they do that they didn't know was wrong. It might be even something they eat out of the fridge or a glance, a look that they give to an adult. And their world just gets rocked. But at Royal Family Kids, we can give children of abuse five days of unconditional love in the Cathedral of the Outdoors where they can hear the voice of God speak to them best. So when my wife and I uh, were in ministry, we were youth and children's pastors in Manhattan, Kansas. And I'm sitting at my desk on a Saturday morning and my phone is ringing as I've just gotten done doing the rounds to the classrooms, distributing the, the rosters and the curriculum uh, copies and the activities and all the stuff. And I was ready to go. And Saturday morning, my phone rings. And I said my dad, uh, 
I, maybe I did or didn't, my dad worked for the telephone company. And the cool thing about my dad was that he was an innovator. He had installed a telephone in every room in our house. And yeah, okay, this was the 70s. Remember, they were the, the ones that had the long coiled cord and it was attached to the wall. And it was a handset so big you could actually hook it on your, on your shoulder and still do stuff. And, and uh, when my friends would come over uh, and a phone call came, the phone would ring and all the bells would go off. That's my favorite sound in the world is the sound of an analog telephone bell, an actual metallic ringing inside a plastic box. Makes a very distinct sound. So when my friends would come over, their eyes would get huge at the number of bells that were going off at the same time in my house. And I had, there was a phone in every room except the bathroom and my bedroom, but my sister had one. So I would sneak into the basement. This is not in my notes. I would sneak in the basement and I would pick up the phone when her boyfriend would call. And I learned things I shouldn't have. But that sound is such a, a distinct, specific sound. So as I'm sitting at my desk and the phone rings, that sound that's normally a, a good sound in my life turned into a sound of destiny as on the other end of the line was a very uh, concerned sounding police officer. He said, Pastor Scott, this is Officer So-and-so, and, -so, and uh, I knew him. He went to our church. He said, could you come to the police station? There's a girl here that won't talk to anyone. Her family just had a real tragic thing happen and, uh, and an explosion of anger, and a social worker was in the house when this happened, and all the children have been taken into foster care, but they don't have a placement for this 14-year-old girl. I think she's been to our church before. Could you come check it out? Well, I went to the police station and I sat on a cold metal folding chair in a tile floor hallway with cinder block concrete walls. And I sat next to this slump of a girl whose hair was disheveled and filled with lice. Her clothes hung from her body, her skin was transparent from malnourishment. And she looked up at me with sunken eyes and she said, wow, Pastor Scott, thanks for coming. I didn't know anybody knew I was here. I recognized her. See, her family was one of those families that goes through the newspaper and looks for church announcements of potluck dinners or events, and they would come with purses and Ziploc bags because that was going to be their meal for a couple of days as they would come. I recognized her. And as a social worker realized that she, I was the first words that she, would, that she had said to me were the first words she had said all day. And... She let us talk for about a half an hour, and then she pulled me aside, and the social worker said, would you please consider taking this girl for the weekend? I know that, you, that she has opened up to you. We don't have a placement. We are just scrambling. We are full this weekend. That's usually the case. There are not enough foster parents to go around for the need of the children, like uh, Joel quoted the statistics of. And she said, it'll just be for the weekend. Right. And social workers, caseworkers, foster parents, if you're in the room, let, let me just say this, you are my heroes. Social workers are on the front lines every day doing battle to defend the needs of children, and they are absolute jewels of our society. They pour their hearts out every day. But the social worker said, it'll just be for the weekend, and so she said, can I call your wife? And, and we did, and within a few hours, they had done a background check, they had been to our house and did a home study. Fortunately, we had a spare bedroom and a spare bathroom, a place where she could feel safe, and it was hers. And uh, we had three other uh, small children, and 
By seven o'clock that night, we had become what I've now affectionately called, we became accidental foster parents. And it transformed our lives. Well, the weekend turned into a week, and the week turned into a month, and the month turned into nine months, and our world was now wrecked. Because we didn't realize. I mean, I, I, I told you, I grew up in a perfect home. We went on vacations. We did stuff. I didn't know child abuse existed. I mean, you hear the stories. You read the headlines. You know that things are happening. I don't need to bring up uh, Pennsylvania statistics and headlines because you guys have been inundated with those things. So you, of anyone in the nation, have a passionate awareness. And I believe that God has a purpose and a destiny for people in this room today to take a giant step of faith to say Pennsylvania no more is going to be a state that has a headline over it, but a state that has a, an absolute underlying passion for doing something significant. Well, after nine months of having this young girl in our home, my wife and I realized that when she would go visit her family on the weekends, things just weren't quite right. She came back to our house five weeks in a row with lice. And uh, we thought we had treated it, taken care of it, and just happened over and over and over again. But that heart of compassion in us said, we want to do something significant. You see, throughout Scripture, Jesus shows his love for children. Throughout Scripture, he, he says that there are those, if you, you know, suffer the little children to come unto me, uh, of such is as the kingdom of God. You can't enter the kingdom of God unless you become like a child. But there's only one sin in Scripture that Jesus himself personally attaches an earthly physical punishment to. If you commit adultery, what does he say? Go and sin no more. In fact, Jesus was riding in the ground, wouldn't even look at the woman who was being accused and said, who's going to cast that first stone? For Zacchaeus, who was a thief, he said, pay back what you've taken. And Zacchaeus went, and he was forgiven. Even the murderer the, and the thief on the cross, Jesus said, for today you will be with me in paradise. But in Matthew 18, he says, whoever receives a child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a heavy millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Every other sin, Jesus is like, I have this covered. You are forgiven. But he personally, this is the only death sentence that Jesus utters in Scripture. You harm a child, it's over for you. Now that doesn't mean that we take revenge on our own hands. That's not what we're here for. People will say, let me at them. There are biker gangs who will say, we will take care of this for you. In fact, there's whole clubs, uh, Bikers Against Child Abuse. It's amazing where they will be advocates for children at court and they'll show up as with arms crossed and tattooed arms and vests, letting children know we're here to protect you. Well, that's a cool ministry. I don't, I'm not saying let's start one of those, Joel. That's not what we're going for. But you understand the seriousness of, of what I'm saying. Defending the, the defenseless is such a huge thing. Jesus had passion for these children. And so my wife and I said, we got to do something more than just be foster parents. So we petitioned the court to become full-time legal guardians to this girl. And when we did, we thought, you know what? We wanted to have a college education. Uh, she's 14 by now. She was with us when, for nine months. By now, she's 15 years old. We're like, we got three years to make this happen. So we stepped up even further. We didn't want to sever parental rights because the state's whole goal is reunification 
of families, and, and that's a, a worthy goal, but there's, uh, there's some very strict boundaries that need to be followed through that. So what we thought was going to be a happy day in court for our foster daughter turned into a day of hot tears and heated words as it, it went the reverse on us, and they were awarded custody back to mom. We didn't think that was going to take place. That was not why we were there. But that broke us, and my wife and I felt like we had failed in such a miserable fashion of following through on what God's call on our heart was, was to reach and, and lift her out of the slimy pit, out of the muck and mire, give her a firm place to stand. And we were just, we were just devastated. And so a few months later, as I'm on a missions trip in central Mexico, laying concrete block and uh, talking to the pastor next to me from another town, just sharing this story about how we lost our foster daughter. Um, he said, you need to know about Royal Family Kids Camp. What I didn't say is that two weeks later, after we lost her, the police came knocking back on our door and said, do you know where, uh, her name is Michaela, do you know where Michaela is? And I said, um, no, it's been two weeks. And they said, well, she has run away. I'm like, what? The day after she moved back in with mom, she said, mom, can I pack uh, a bag? I'm going to spend the night with a friend. And the mom said, sure, whatever. And she went and packed a bag and was gone. Because she was changing school districts from the Christian school that we had her in to the public school that was uh, out in the country a ways, there was no transfer of paperwork that took place. So there was no truancy and no one was notified that she was not in school. So she, she was one of those statistics that slips through the cracks, and this happens so often. So many children, they say 70 to, to 75% of children that have been uh, taken into the sex trafficking trade are kids that have been formerly in the foster care system that have just kind of gone off grid. And nobody looks for them, and nobody cares, because there's too many of them. But it wrecked us. And so as I'm laying those concrete block and building this, this uh, church in central Mexico, this pastor says, you got to know about Royal Family Kids Camp. And so I did some digging, and my wife and I, uh, that was 98 when we were foster parents, 99, we went to training in Winston-Salem, Winston -Salem, North Carolina, and we were messed up. Because you see, to start a Royal Family Kids Camp, it's not just, hey, I want to go do this summer camp for kids. I mean, I have met so many people who have a passion for serving kids in this way. Yep, I want to start a camp. Let's go do it. But we realize, our royal family realizes, that it's a bigger thing than just saying, Let's, we have a great idea. So we, in 1985, when we launched, Wayne Tesh, who you may or may not have heard, the founder, went directly to social services and said, we want, as a church, for this partnership to happen with the state, so the state gives us this mandate of how we should do things, how we should train our volunteers. And this whole thing just began to explode from 1985, it went from one camp to within a few years, there was a handful of camps to when we launched our first camp in the year 2000, there was 64 camps. Now, as Joel said, we're 237 worldwide. It's unbelievable. What we did it, um, yeah, you can applaud, that's great. So we did it because Wayne Tesh, the founder, said, you know what, education is the backbone of what we do. Training ensures quality, and screening ensures that we only have the best of the best people. I said, when you serve those that nobody wants, God sends you those that everyone wants. We only get the best, most quality people. 
In fact, there's a uh, story of a military recruiting day at a high school. Four branches of the service were uh, given 20 minutes of an assembly. Each one had five minutes to speak. The army guy took seven minutes. The navy guy took another seven minutes. The Air Force guy took what was left, leaving one minute for the Marine. The Marine got to the platform and said to a room full of students, I know everybody else told you how cool their branch of the service is, but the Marines are so tough, you probably couldn't make it anyway. His table was flooded. (laughs) Folks, I'm here because we need an army of compassion or a Marine Corps of compassion. We need the best of the best people, people who will step up and say, I want to make a huge difference. So my wife and I went through the training camp, 36 class hours of study, 20 hours of observation at a running camp with masters and PhD level trainers who are experts in social work, but also passionate believers who have directed camps themselves. And they brought us to this place of awesome Cathedral of the Outdoors experience, giving us the royal treatment and said, you are going to do the hardest thing in your entire life. To direct a camp, it's four to 500 hours a year of volunteer labor, of giving and serving and doing. And these guys have been amazing directors. And the directors before them, you guys have raised a standard here in Erie that is just excellent and known throughout the royal family community. But God raises up people, and as we were going through that training, we realized this is so much bigger than us. And it was at one of our breaks on a footbridge at that camp as we were overlooking a beautiful stream that flowed underneath. And my wife and I said, this is bigger than us. And so we went back, we took our director's manual, we contacted social services, we raised our funds, we recruited our team, and we launched our first camp. And at our first camp, we had 22 children And they were the toughest of the tough. And there was one boy whose name was Tommy. Tommy had been burned from the chest down by being held in a tub of scalding water as punishment. Being a young boy of color, when his skin healed, it healed a different color from the middle of his arms down. His first day at camp was his first day in a year to be able to not have to wear that mesh protective uh, uh, clothing, undergarment, so that it didn't chafe his skin as it healed. And when he got to camp, Tommy's counselor, Ted, Ted was this huge, burly construction worker type guy, salt and pepper gray beard, and he wore a terry cloth red, white, and blue sweatband, and very 80s looking. He had knee socks up to here with the stripe, and, and the, the, the nylon gym shorts with the, he played the 80s look really well. He knew that he was totally like being disarming. It was his goal to just have fun at camp. But he said, give me the, give me the worst kid. Well, normally, you can see from our logo, if we can throw that on the screen, um, normally our logo is, is this. It's a crown. But it's not just a crown. It's actually one adult in the center and a child on each side with their hands being lifted up and their faces turned up to, to look at that role model of that leader. And you can see that red stripe is we stand on the blood of Christ in everything we do. And those two stripes are the path that we're walking these children down. There's so much meaning and inference in that logo. Most people just see it as a crown, but I cannot see a crown anymore. And even the hands of the children are on top of being raised up by that adult. But Ted said, give me the toughest kid. And so we gave him Tommy. And it had to be one to one because it was going to take his full on attention. Well, Tommy didn't want to do any of this stuff at camp. He didn't want to do the fun things. He didn't want to make the t-shirt. He didn't want to 
uh, go swimming. He didn't want to open his box of birthday presents because he said, you're just going to take them away from me anyway. Tommy would lay on the back row in chapel, did not want to look at the puppets. He didn't want to sing the songs. He didn't want to participate in the activities or the games. He was angry with those arms crossed the whole week. The only thing Tommy did want to do was go to the woodworking station. At many camps, we'll have a woodworker who prepares kits for the kids of things that are already pre-cut, even the nail holes pre-drilled, so they can feel successful when they hammer those nails in. But Tommy didn't want to do that. He wanted to have the big hammer, and we had lots of scrap wood, four by fours and two by twelves and two by fours and just, just and some cut-off stumps. All Tommy wanted to do was take the big hammer and those shiny long sixteen penny nails, and he wanted to hammer nails into the wood. That's all he would for two hours every afternoon. He would just hammer nails, and it was as if he craved the firm feel of that wooden-handled hammer and the pinging of metal on metal as he would sink those nails deep into the grain of the big wood. And you could just see with every blow, something was coming out because every day it happened. Well, we get to the end of camp. The week is done. Uh, the bags are packed. We're ready to go home. And we have a closing ceremony. Many camps have a closing ceremony that, that we talk about in training. And oftentimes we'll plant a tree and we'll dig a hole in the ground and we'll have the children at the end of our last chapel before we leave, we'll have the children write a, a memory they want to leave behind or a wound they want to forget, something from their past that they want to bury and leave at camp. And then we'll plant a tree on top of that. The significance is life from death, good from bad, a place to mourn, a place to heal, a place that they can know that something is just gone. But at this camp, we were on a peninsula in, on, a, on a lake in Kansas, and it was very rocky ground and, and hot. And we knew that it, it was not likely that a tree was going to survive that. So we had a stone carver with us. And he carved on top of this limestone boulder, he carved the word confidence. The significance of the word confidence comes from a song that is part of our curriculum that we sing in every, uh, in every uh, camp. And the words say, I will change your name. And it goes, I will change your name from wounded, outcast, lonely, and afraid to confidence, Friend of God, overcoming one, one who sees my face. You see, most children from foster care, children of abuse, only hear their names as a swear word. They've only been told you're an idiot, you're stupid, you can't do it, don't touch that, you'll never succeed. But when they hear a song that says, I will change your name, something spiritual, something deep takes place when they say, I can have a new name. In fact, many kids, when they're adopted, they're given the choice by the judge and by their adoptive parents to change their name because they don't like what they've been called for their entire lives. Well, as all the rest of the children had very ceremoniously written something on their paper and put it in the hole that we had dug to roll that stone on, and they took a handful of dirt and dropped it on Tommy at the very end. He just had had enough. He finally grabbed a slip of paper and scribbled something on it, threw it in the hole, kicked some dirt on it, and when he stood back next to Ted, he was still just clenched. We closed in prayer. We sang, Jesus loves me. And we rolled a stone of confidence on top of this fresh mound of dirt. And as it took a few guys to do it, as it came down with a thud, I literally watched as Tommy went, and he let it out. Camp's over. 
bus is packed. We turn and we walk single file back to the bus. And Tommy, one of the last ones in line, and I'm off to the side just making sure everything's clear. Tommy tugs on the shirt tail of his big camper Ted that was t-shirt hanging out. And he said, Ted, can I have a piggyback ride? I've never had a piggyback ride in my life. Well, we don't do piggyback rides at Royal Family Kids Camp. No, no lap sitting, only safe side hugs, uh, two deep rule, no child is ever allowed with any less than two trained adults at any given time. Safety and healthy boundaries is a hallmark of what we do. Ted freaks out, he's, he looks at me and he's like, what do I do? And I'm like, this child has not touched an adult the entire week. He's not had his hand held. Go ahead and give him the piggyback ride. So this nine-year-old boy scurries up the back of this mountain of a man and he wraps those burn-scarred arms around his neck and just settles in. And as tears begin to mingle cheek to cheek on a walk to the bus, I'm getting closer because I want to, I just, I want to be in on this moment with these guys. And Tommy pulls his head away and he says to Ted, he says, Ted, I've never felt this kind of love in my life either. I think I need this Jesus you're talking about. Would you pray with me? And so steps before he gets on the bus, Tommy has a moment with Christ and Ted is, (laughs) you know what I mean? He's just like losing it. It's unbelievable. And on the outside, all of us are going, that's good, that's good, it's all cool. On the inside, we're going, yes! Because we just realized that a, a miracle, a moment with Christ had taken place on a walk to the bus. And needless to say, a week later, I get a call from social services. And it was the head of social services who called me and my wife. Well, first of all, my phone rang and I picked it up and I put it under my shoulder because I was doing some other stuff. And she said, is this pastor, and I'm riding high. I'm thinking, man, this was great. She's calling to say thank you, how awesome it was. And she said, uh, is this Pastor Scott Marish? I said, yes, it is. She said, this is Director of Social Services. We need to talk. Uh, I'm thinking something went down. And uh, I said, is everything okay? She says, yeah, yeah. Can you bring your assistant director with you? And I'm like, Sure. And so my wife and I went to the office of the director of social services. We walked into a conference room where 24 women were seated around eight-foot tables that had been pushed together. And they sat us right at the end. And I'm thinking, interrogation. (laughs) But they said, we need to share something with you. And one by one, these 24 women, uh, 22 uh, 22 caseworkers and a couple of their leaders said, We want to say thank you because here's the story of the three uh, sibling sisters who haven't seen each other in two years. They had a family reunion because they got to go to your camp. They've been separated. We had a fetal alcohol syndrome boy who had limited communication skills and uncontrollable behaviors. He came back from camp and he's just different. And they finally got all the way around the room and they said, now let's tell you about Tommy. Tommy, we've never seen smile. Now we can't get him to stop smiling. And he's singing those camp songs. You see, we send an MP3 player. Well, then it was a cassette tape. But we send an MP3 player. You get it. Um, It was 2000. We could have done DVDs, but that would, you know, anyway. Or CDs, excuse me. But uh, they said, Tommy won't stop singing those camp songs. 
They said, he has a dimple, and we didn't know that he had a dimple because he had never smiled. They said, you've done more in five days to break through the walls in these children's lives than we've seen done in nine months to a year of counseling and therapy. What did you do? And my wife and I looked at each other and we said, well, we had a camp grandma and grandpa. We took them fishing. We had a birthday party. We had a talent show. We told them stories. We sang songs. And I finally got down to it and I said, we just shared the unconditional love of Christ in the cathedral of the outdoors where they can hear his voice best, like I had already shared. And they said, well, we don't know about that God stuff, but this is the best thing we've ever seen. Please don't ever stop. And so my wife and I walked out of there. Our hearts were moved deeply, and we said, this is bigger. I became, six years later, a full-time ambassador for Royal Family Kids. And it was a giant step of faith. Title of my message today, you never give it at the end. Title of my message is giant steps of faith. God may be calling you today to take a giant step of faith, to step out and do something that you've never experienced before, to say, to take, to say I'm going to take a week of vacation, but it's a vacation with a purpose. Like the Marines, it's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. But once you've done it, you'll be addicted and you'll never be able to stop. Because you know, you will know what the power of a changed life does. I'm going to show a video real quick. It's called James' story, and this story is about a guy who was totally scared to go to camp, but then he took a next step and did not only the week of summer camp, but the mentoring club, and it's powerful. So sit back and watch James' story. I grew up in a Christian home. And I love God. My perceived impact that I could have on the kingdom was the money I could give. I never thought that beyond giving money to the church, I could really have any impact. And that was okay with me. I was satisfied with it. I'm an accountant, and because I'm an accountant, numbers talk to me. Melissa, my wife, and I have both really had a heart for foster care for a long time. Pastor Rick mentioned on a Sunday morning about the statistics and understanding that these kids have this horrible reality in front of them. And my thought was, I want to get involved. But, you know, I have a young child. I can't be a foster parent right now. But I finally got tired of making excuses. And so I said, okay, Royal Family Kids is something I can commit to. And so I went for it. All the counselors go up the day before camp and kind of get things ready for the campers when they show up the next day. They walk you through the final trainings and you start to kind of have a panic attack. And I was freaked out. I honestly was at the place where if they would have said, you know what, we're having some campers cancel at the last minute, we don't need all the counselors, I would have left. I would have been like, all right, that means that I don't have to do this. These kids have been through so much and what qualifies me to help them? And although I knew God had placed me there for a reason, it wasn't clear at that moment. And so I was just freaked out. I didn't sleep well at all. And then when the camper, the buses were driving in, I mean, I was physically shaking, you know, being trying to be enthusiastic, but I just didn't know what was gonna walk off the bus and meet me. And you'd heard the stories about kids that were difficult at camp, and you had heard all the stories about their background. For so many of these kids, they've lost everything. If I listed the top five most important things and had all of them ripped away from me, what would that do to me? And that's what happens to these kids. If they're lucky, they have God to hold on to. Most of them don't. They've never been to church. They have nothing. And they get yanked out of their home, 
And for some of them, it happens at school. They don't even get up home to pack. They don't take their favorite toy with them. They got what they have on their back. And for me, I can't imagine that happening. That's the reality for these kids. We wonder why they have issues. For us, being able to give God to these kids is the greatest gift we can give them. I loved the experience of camp by the end of it. I was terrified at the beginning and by the end, it was, I would never trade it. I would go back, I'll go back every year. Camp is this really unique opportunity to take these kids who have been through all this stuff and give them an environment in which they're safe, they're loved, there's attention poured upon them. And it's super exciting to see what happens in such a short period of time. It also showed me though, if this was their reality at home, that would change their life. One of the great things that Royal Family Kids did over the past number of years is develop the club program, which is the mentoring program that runs year round. They ask us to spend four hours a month with the kids, which is easy for, the, for those of us that have served because we want to give as much to these kids as we have. It's so fun to see the change, the trust be built up with somebody that's consistently there for them, that loves them, that encourages them in what they're doing. It's amazing the bond we have now. And most of the time we play basketball because <laughs> that's what he wants to do. But that's okay because we talk and we get the time together. When I told my, the, the first young man that I was mentoring, I love you, I'm proud of you. I think you have great things for your life. And he, to see his reaction to that, he lit up. It was like he had heard it for the first time and he believed it. And so being able to give that to somebody, well, that's truly what most of us want to hear is that we're loved and, and that somebody's proud of us. And to be able to give that to a kid is one of the most uh, phenomenal experiences I've ever experienced. God has really gotten a hold of my heart and he has shown me it's not about your paycheck. That's not all I have for you. I have greater things for you. I think I found my thing with helping the foster care community. It may not stop at Royal Family Kids. I have some really big dreams I feel like God has given me. And it's really amazing to feel like I'm walking straight in the middle of His will for my life. And the way He's gripped me and changed the way I look at the world through these foster kids. That's changed me more than I could ever change them. And it's really exciting. I feel like a whole new purpose for my life. I feel like I truly know what I'm supposed to do. And it's so much joy to walk in that. Today, we're here to ask you to consider walking in that joy. In 2006, when I became a full-time ambassador, a few months in, my phone rings. I'm sitting at my desk, and this time I pull it out of my pocket, and it's a Motorola Razor <laughs> flip phone. And on the other end of the line was this confident-sounding young girl that said, is this Pastor Scott? And I said, yes, it is. She said, this is Michaela. I'm like, Michaela, Michaela, Michaela. <gasps> Michaela, we hadn't heard from her for eight years. I said, where are you? Are you okay? She said, I'm all right, but I got to write you a letter. If I try and put into words what I have to say, I'll mess it up. Can I get your address? I need to write you a letter. A few days later, I got a four-page handwritten letter, front and back college rule paper, fine-lined. She said, dear Pastor Scott and Tricia, I just want to let you know Miss Trisha, she still calls my wife Miss Trisha to this day. She said, I just want to let you know, when you and Miss Trisha took me to court 
The judge pulled me aside and asked me who I wanted to live with. We had no idea that that took place. But it's the nature of an abused child or a battered woman to want to give their family or their abuser a second chance. It's just the way it is. We can't judge anyone for that. It's just what's in us. We want people to have a second chance. She said, but everything in me wanted to live with you guys. I saw you on your hands and knees playing dolls with your daughter, and I didn't know a dad could do that. She said, I saw you not yelling at your boys, and I wanted that kind of life so bad that in my family, the dogs ate better than the kids. And I realized when I went home that nothing had changed, so I packed a bag and ran away. But she said, I put myself through school. I got my GED. I went to community college. I met a great guy. Would you come to my wedding? I'm like, I call her back. I'm like, Michaela, I don't want to come to your wedding. I want to do your wedding. And I did get to do her wedding. And it was amazing. But as pastor gets ready to come and uh, receive the offering, I just want to say she continued to write. She said, I can't remember how this prayer goes. You see, she used to go to bed in a hoodie sweatshirt with the hoodie pulled tight and her hoodie put, tucked in her jeans and the jeans pulled tight and the jeans tucked in long socks and her shoes by her bed because she, if she would hear footsteps coming down the hall, she knew she had to get out of the room or something bad was going to happen. But she said, that first night in your home, this may sound weird, but I felt something physical leave my body and I felt safe in my bed for the first time. And she said, I can't remember that prayer that Miss Trisha used to pray, but I think it went something like, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans not to harm you, but plans to give you a hope and a future. She quoted Jeremiah 29, 11, word for word. She was changed forever. I'd like to say it's totally happily ever after. She still struggles with stuff, but she was at our house the week before Thanksgiving and asked my wife, what's that stuff, because she was going to make Thanksgiving dinner, what's that stuff that's red and it's shaped like a can. <laughs> and how do you shape it like a can? And so folks, you can give hope to children. Pastor, for sharing your pulpit, this is a huge privilege. But as a missionary, I just want to say, your church, thank you for what you are doing and what, you, what Erie First is doing to make a significant impact. God bless you guys. I'll let you receive the rest of the service. You give him a round of applause. Thank you.